That one made me want to do a clap offering. All right. I know. I know we've had talks about applause versus clapping and all that kind of thing, but it's okay to clap in worship of the Lord and response and saying amen with our hands, right? We're going we're gonna to read another passage uh, of the resurrection account in John's gospel, John chapter 20, and I'm going to uh, camp here just a little bit. As you're, as you're going there, I want to read uh, some of the lyrics to a very, um, well, for many of our congregation, a popular tune and a familiar tune in the garden. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear Falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he calls me. I am his own. Uh, it's it's a, a very experiential song, kind of an existential uh, understanding of faith and so forth. I was drawn to this song and the lyrics as we approach John chapter 20, because here we're in the garden, and we find a woman who is alone in the garden, with Jesus who speaks with her. John chapter 20, first verse. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That would be John who's writing this. Uh, and, he, and she said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Now, notice she says, we don't know. We read in Matthew that there were several women present. Somehow she's gotten uh, separated from them. Maybe she ran ahead of them early, like John would run ahead early. Anyway, um, we get the idea, idea there is a group. There is a group. There's not, no conflict in the, in the narratives at all. So she says, we, we're not sure where, where they put him. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I don't know why John felt he needed to put that little part in there, that he won the race, but he did. And stooping, he looked in, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, there you go again, yeah, it's got to get in, I was there first. Um, the one who was there first also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that Jesus must rise from the dead, and the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, uh, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, without any question, without any trepidation, just like this is a normal experience, although it's not, she says to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. 
And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he told these things to her. Now, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they said, saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. The, the first section is dealing with the missing body. Almost sounds like a mystery of some kind, and, and it is. The missing body. Mary Magdalene comes on the first day of the week. John's very clear to emphasize this is the first day of the week. It's not the seventh day. It's not the Sabbath. That's old covenant. That's old days. Those days are gone. No more do we do worry about a seventh day or a Sabbath. Now it is the first day of the week. It is the day of resurrection. Christ is risen. And from here on out, this is the, this is the time when the church gathers on the first day of the week. Well, Mary Magdalene is up on the first day of the week, and the, the body had been placed there two days ago, uh, previous to the day of rest, previous to the Sabbath day, and this now being the third day. And she's a devout follower of Jesus. She had been there at the cross. She saw this, and she had been there when his body had been placed into the tomb. And now she is there early in the morning uh, to pay her respects to her master. And, and this is a woman who um, had had, as Luke would account, Seven demons cast out of her. Now, seven is, is like in Hebrew way of thinking, like the number of perfection, the number of completion, like totality, infinite. So we're not, it's probably not just seven. It's probably talking about multitudinous, legionous kind of possession. And, and she's been washed clean by Jesus, who made her whole. And she is devoted to him for saving her life. And Mary approaches the garden tomb and sees that the entrance is open. Now again, she's part of the other Marys in, in the group that's going to bring this uh, act of, of honor uh, to what they assume a, a dead Lord. That's who they're looking for, a dead Jesus. Uh, now, it, it seems that Mary in her devotion, gets ahead of the group. And she's there. And doesn't stay there very long, though. She sees that the tomb is open, and she turns away to go get the biggest guy she can think of, Peter. I mean, who else would, would be able to open this tomb but big, mean, criminal-like fellas? So she goes to get Peter. He can handle them. She tells Peter and John, that, that is the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we could trace that uh, for homework if we wanted to, but P 
Peter impulsive. He, he just goes. He bolts out there. John, nimble and quick, he just outpaces Peter. And uh, Peter's like maybe the waitman, the shot putter. And John is like the sprinter. Right? So compare, I don't know. Just sanctified imagination. So off they go. And John, again, more thoughtful in some regard. He gets there and he looks and he kind of stoops in. Maybe, maybe out of reverence, maybe out of fear. Are there big guys in there? Peter n- n- doesn't come across with thinking. And he just keeps going right in. And uh, John had got a glimpse. Okay, he sees the clothes. But Peter went in and he saw the whole scene. Peter goes in and he, interesting I don't mean to be disrespectful to Peter by saying it, it, it appears he went in without thinking. He just, he just is impulsive. He goes in. But the word that's used here when he actually sees and considers what he's seeing, he sees the linen cloths over here and he sees the, the facial handkerchief folded and put up over here. The word here, we get our English word theory. It's theoreo. He's theorizing like, okay, Peter's thoughtful. Peter can think. This is a heavy-duty, intentional, thoughtful, look-at-the-evidence, ponder, observe, and make a rational conclusion. He's, he's seeing the evidence, physical, tangible evidence, and he sees, he's theorizing, theoreo, what is going on. Well, Peter made it in, so then John ends up, it must be safe to enter in. And John then sees what Peter has seen, and John now sees, this is a different word, he, he sees with comprehension. And here, John's response is belief. Now he believes, he begins to remember that Jesus had been telling them repeatedly, on the third day I'll rise from the dead. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, but the third day I'm going to rise. And there's, there's at least one, two, three, four, five, six occurrences recorded in the Gospels where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and the third day I'll be risen from the dead. And is anybody there looking for a risen Savior? No. Nobody is there on the third day. I mean, just count. One, two, three. And nobody is there waiting for the risen Savior. The, the ladies go assuming a dead one. John now is putting the pieces together and says, now he finally understood the scriptures and he believes. He has faith. He trusts in Jesus, that Jesus' word is true, and that indeed Jesus has been raised from the dead. John now comes out of the darkness and into the light. He's seen the evidence. He's heard the words of Jesus by memory. And now he believes. And that's, that's how it works. You hear the words of Jesus and you believe. We'll talk about seeing when we get to Mary. Now, interestingly, nothing is said about Peter's response, is there? Other than the word he's thaoreoing. Like, well, what's he doing with this? What conclusion is he coming to? But we can give him... We need to give him room and space because imagine the burden that he is bearing. He's betrayed Jesus. He's, he's denied knowing Jesus. 
to escape death and save his own skin. He's rejected Jesus. And now, uh-oh. What's, what's this mean? And what have I done? So we'll, we'll give Peter a little time. But John believes. And the two of them go back to their homes. Now, remember, they're in Jerusalem, so it's not like their hometown. But it's the place that they've been staying during this holy week and celebrated uh, different things of the week with Jesus. But verse 11 goes on. Um, Mary stood there weeping outside the tomb. She's left alone again, alone in the garden. Her weeping eyes, her doubt, and her darkness, and all, all she can see is the emptiness of the tomb. All she can see is the absence of Jesus. The evidence is there, but she still can't truly see it. Now, the angels have come to attend to Jesus, and like, wow, this is kind of cool. They were there when he was born. You know, angels appear uh, saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men on whom his favor rests, and now the angels are here when he, at his resurrection. Isn't that great? Angels are at prominent places. They were there in the garden, guarding the way, uh, lest man walk back in uh, inappropriately, uncovered. And now the angels in the garden are saying, come on in. This is, a, this is a new creation. This is a new garden. This is a new life in Jesus. Well, the angels kind of give us a, a warning this way, and, and it's, also, it's also poignant, isn't it? That here we have an obedient Jesus, obedient all the way to death, death on the cross. Remember one of the temptations that the devil threw at him was, hey, I want you to do a super high dive here, and the angels will catch you. You can read that in Matthew 4, Luke 4. And Jesus wouldn't go there. And the devil actually quotes scripture, Psalm, I think it's 91, saying the angels will catch you. They won't let your foot stri strike. And, but Jesus wouldn't go there at that time. And now you see the angels are attending to him. One at his head and one at his feet where they had lied. Yeah, he waited for the right time. He waited for the Father to fulfill his word and his purpose and not get ahead of God, the Father. Yeah, it's Psalm 91, verses 11 to 13. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion, the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Jesus has just crushed the head of the serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, conquering sin and death. And the angels are there attending Jesus, saying, go Jesus. God is good in his word. Well, the angels are there, and, and uh, they, they gently uh, approach this weeping woman and say, why, why are you weeping? And I get the, get the sense like maybe they, they're like, looking behind her, like kind of nodding over this direction. Why are you weeping? And then she turns, and she sees uh, a man behind her, assuming it's the garden. She's crying, and she still can't see him, even though she's looking at him. What, what grief 
and sorrow blinds your vision? What tears get in your eyes that you can't see or see clearly? What gets in the way of your devotion to Jesus? She thinks he's the gardener. And she says, where did you put him? Tell me where you put him. I'll carry him. What? I don't know how she expects she's going to do this all on her own, but this is the, the measure of her devotion, and she is devoted. But her devotion, her devotion brings her no comfort. And it's not that devotion is wrong, but, but her devotion isn't rightly placed. You know, yeah, it's on Jesus as far as it goes, but she has an undercurrent of wrong assumptions. She's concerned enough to do the right thing. Uh, but she's confused enough not to see the truth, not to find the ultimate meaning until, until Jesus reveals himself to her. He calls her by name, Mary, and she hears her voice and she recognizes Jesus, teacher. Faith is not the result of seeing Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, who calls your name. Now, you, you may not necessarily see him standing there. You may not necessarily hear the audible voice, Todd, Todd. If I do, that's more likely um, the manifest presence of the Lord through my wife, which is important. But no, there is this inner testimony of the Holy Spirit with your spirit calling your name, saying, Todd, come here. Let me walk with you in the garden. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you want to see Christ, you need to hear him first. That, this is just beautiful. And Jesus reveals himself to her by name, personally, relationally, and he initiates this act of saving grace. Yes, she has been weeping, but now her weeping has been turned to joy. And she says, I have seen the Lord. Now, there's a number of evidence that are here. There's more, but even just in this narrative, the, the veracity, the truthfulness, the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The tomb is opened and empty. The grave clothes are present. If there were robbers, they would have taken the grave clothes because they're filled with precious, expensive perfumes and nards and ointments. They're worth something. That's what they want, not the body. The grave clothes are empty, lying in the very position as if the body had passed through them. Mary, this will sound really bad, and in a sense it is, um, but it was of the day. In a Hebrew court, a woman's testimony would not have been admitted. If someone was making up 
this resurrection story and wanted it to be passed off as, you know, the most reliable, entered into admissible to court, they, they wouldn't have chosen Mary to be the first eyewitness. This is not made up. This is real. But what an elevation of all created in the image of God, male and female, man and woman. But not only that, Mary actually touched him. And later, Thomas will have this similar kind of experience. And Jesus' response, Jesus' response is, ouch. I got that from another preacher. He's like, don't squeeze me so tight. Don't hold on to me that tight. You know, go. Go tell the others. He... He will leave, he will depart, but he won't leave us alone. He'll send the Comforter, he'll send the Holy Spirit, that Christ would be present with us always and everywhere. But he reveals himself not only to Mary, but also to the eleven. The ones who abandoned him. You know, you can see... Jesus wanting to reconnect with Mary and Mary. But what? These guys ran away. They left him, denied even knowing him. But Jesus mercifully, tenderly, graciously will reveal himself to them to restore them and to encourage them. So through this so far, we have seen that, that belief and faith overcome misunderstanding, mishearing, uh, ignorance about who Jesus is. And, and his mercy, the mercy of the Lord, overpowers your sorrow, whatever that sorrow is connected to. Now there's the locked doors, 19 to 23. The excitement and confusion of the morning uh, is all contained itself now, and, and they've locked themselves in a meeting place, these disciples. And the women have seen Jesus, they've told him, and rumors are going around, and who's seen who, and Peter and John, and whatnot. And evening finally comes. But they're gathered in a room, the doors are locked, and they're afraid. They're still afraid. This isn't the fear of the Lord. This is the fear of the Jews, the, the religious elite, the power brokers who had Jesus killed, had him crucified. They're afraid of them. Yeah, Jesus was crucified as a criminal, branded as disloyal to Rome, a revolutionary, and, and a heretic in Jerusalem. And they associated with him. If they did that to him, what are they going to do to us? Lock the room, as if that really would help. But you get the idea. They fear for their own lives. And it's into this uh, sublime atmosphere of evening shadows and cowering fear that Jesus appears. Right? He is, he's there. No tombstone could contain Jesus that resurrection morning. And the, the stone apparently was rolled away not to let him out, but to let Peter and Mary and John in to see. 
I mean, the body went right through the grave clothes, and here the body appeared in the room. Jesus is God. He doesn't need anything, and nothing can block him or inhibit him. But it's for us. No door, no bolted door is going to stop him, and he's there. He just appears like God is everywhere present, and he's showing the disciples, I really am the Son of God. But it's evening time, and I, I just love the evening time. You know, i, I, I got to think about it maybe a little more carefully and all thoroughly all the way through. But I, at this point, I, I would say if I had to choose between a morning service and an evening service, I'd keep the evening service. That's when they did this stuff. This is when they had the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's breakfast. That's the fish in the next chapter. It was the Lord's Supper. It's evening. And maybe it's just nostalgia for me. I, my, I, I, got, I met the Lord in the evening service. I was five years old. It was an evening service, just a regular preaching service. A uh, little church plant that, that was in the basement of their building. They hadn't even built the top part yet. And uh, I, the pastor called. Does anyone need a Savior? And that was, that. I love the evening services. You know, in the early church, that's when they had to meet. Like, they didn't get Sunday off. It's a work day. And they gathered in the evening. Had the Lord's Supper when they gathered. Well, that's a footnote. Sorry. One of those bunnies today. Now, but, but how, how assuring is the presence of Jesus to cast out fear and to bring peace. He appears to the disciples and he shows them his wounds that made for their redemption. That Passover lamb. And now they, they will have the opportunity to touch the sacrificial lamb and identify with the sacrifice for them. And he blesses them with peace. They're, they're afraid. They're afraid of, of loss, like Mary had been. Afraid of their failure with their own master. They're afraid of uncertainty for what the future might be like. They're afraid of persecution. They're afraid of suffering. We all have fears. And fears will... will manifest themselves in different ways. Some of it is truly the trembling and the cowering. Oftentimes, fear looks like anger. It, it, you're afraid of losing something, and so you get angry, upset, frustrated. We have different synonyms for it, but you're angry. Fear. Well, Jesus enters his presence, and the attending, the attending aspect of Jesus' presence is peace. He says it twice in this passage, peace be with you. He'll meet Thomas later, and again he repeats it, uh, peace be with you. That, that, that then became a formal greeting in the church. This is how they greeted one another, peace be with you. The Lord be with you. Great biblical terms that 
create a culture. We're not, we're not just counterculture. We're an alternative culture with a different way that we greet one another. Um, oh, can I do a little rabbit trail here? Um, I learned a great greeting when I was in another country with a friend, and it took me a long time to, to get it sound kind of right. Um, and I'll probably botch it up. But it's a powerful greeting. And I, I learned it, and I, I brought it to the greet the church in the country we were at, and the response I didn't expect. The, the older ladies of the congregation, they, just, they stood up immediately. Whoa, it was kind of shocking. Privets to you. Vlad taught me that word, and he can say it better than me. Imagine. Now, in that country, they shortened the phrase to just privet. You'll hear that. You'll hear it in movies. Privet. Say, hi. But, and I can't go into all this. This is my rabbit trail. The greeting is a religious greeting, right? Originally, in its context. Privets to you. And the world will shorten to get rid of the religious, to get rid of Jesus. But we have a different culture, not just counterculture, an alternative culture that we're developing here at Grace Bible. We need to work together and we need to work harder at it. It's going to be even more important as we go forward in these days. Because society and culture are drastically not only different, but opposed to this message of a risen Savior and the peace that he brings. How do you get this kind of peace? And, and the disciples' corresponding emotion, gladness, verse 20. They saw the Lord and they were glad. That was our verse in 2020. Chapter 20, verse 20. The disciples saw the Lord and they were glad. And, and what, a, what a, you know, in retrospect, what a great verse for lockdown. Because where did the disciples? Locked down, right? They're behind locked doors. So, you know, the wor what does the world know about peace? Not very much. I mean, they make treaties and things like that and sing about Coca-Cola at Christmas. But everything is chaos politically and economically and, and familially and personally. The, the world's approach to chaos is lockdown. And, and, and we might be disappointed with the, the outcomes of such a physical lockdown in the wake of fear of disease and death. But, but look at your own relational and personal experience. When, when strife and suffering and disappointment and fear and worry and despondency come, what do you do? Lockdown. Emotionally, relationally, lockdown. So let's, let's be patient with a world that's in complete terror and fear and has no Savior in their midst saying, peace be with you. Peace is the wellness and the wholeness of God for a person in whom you're blessing. 
And it's not necessarily the absence of trouble, but it's the presence of God in it and through it. Being well in the presence of God. Gladness and peace and fortitude. How do we acquire such a blessing? Well, Jesus, John records this very briefly and quickly, and we, we wish there was more to this here, but he simply says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. Verse 22. Receive the Holy Spirit. We uh, Saturday nights are kind of like family film night, even still, with 20-year-olds. Um, I've given up selecting the movies. It was easy when they were young, good old Walt Disney black and white ones, you know, but you know, still. So last night was The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I'm like, well, that's Christmas. No, it actually it, it ends with Easter. And one of the, one of the images of Aslan is, is uh, breathing on those that have been petrified, those that have been turned to stone. He breathes, and what happens? They're, they're resuscitated. They're, they're come to life. The callousness is gone, and the softness and the tenderness of life and flesh is there. Jesus breathes on the disciples, and they're made alive in their spirit. This is how God did the first creation. He formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, dirt. Guys, you're dirt. He formed, he, formed God, he formed the man by the word of his mouth out of dirt, and then he breathed life into that form. He breathed life. That was the first creation, and this is now what he's doing in the new creation. He's breathing life and forming a new creation. We've got hints of this throughout the whole narrative, and early, early on, uh, Jesus had talked with a guy named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a secret follower of Jesus, it would appear, because at the death of Jesus, Nicodemus is there with Joseph of Arimathea helping to put Jesus' body in the tomb. In the very first encounter Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you don't know from where it comes or from where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus breathed the Spirit upon them, and they were made alive. Peace of God with them and in them and through them. As Jesus tells you who He is, you learn who you are. You may, you may be confused, like in our first vignette, or you, you might be sorrowful, like our second vignette, or you might be fearful, like in the third vignette. There is a faith that is wrought by God and overcomes ignorance and misunderstanding. There is a mercy that flows upon you and over you and overshadows your sorrows. And there is a peace that passes over all fear and failure. It's Jesus. And He's alive. Let's pray.
Indeed, Father, we do come to you and would ask for the same kind of blessing. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure. Until my will is one with yours to do and to endure. Breathe on me, breath of God, fulfill my heart's desire till this earthly part of me glows with your heavenly fire. Breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die, but live with you the perfect life of your own eternity. For we who have known this message and hearing the old, old story again, Lord, would you write on our heart every word. And in our fears and failures, would you bring fortitude and faith that we would walk as the new creation, the old gone, the new has come. And for those of us who perhaps hear this resurrection story for the first time, really heard it. So, God, would you work a new heart in that one to believe, to trust, to lean upon Jesus for life, for godliness. We thank you because of Jesus. Amen.